Good morning, everyone. This is another episode of the Make a Difference podcast. I am your host, Darius Bell, with my co-host, Farah. And we have the privilege today of being with Lisa and Russell from a wonderful organization based out of Austin called Keep Austin Fed. Uh, at its highest point, what they do is gather surplus food from commercial kitchens, and they distribute it to the people who have need of it in the Austin area. So Lisa, Russell, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for taking the time to be with us. And what we wanna do with this is have a, just have a, a, a chance to just give you guys a platform and learn how you are making a difference because you're doing that in the Austin area. I mean, I know personally that surplus food is a major issue. Uh, and so, you know, maybe spend these initial minutes and let's just, let's just hear the heart behind Keep Austin Fed, what you guys are up to, history. Uh, let us into your world a bit. Russell, you wanna run with that? <laughs> sure. So basically we started, uh, with a couple guys as in a really grassroots position. So there was an organization uh, that one of our founders had actually started called uh, Keep Austin Mobile. And the whole idea was another grassroots organization that started with taking uh, elderly people to that, that may not have access to easy mobility, getting them to doctor's appointments, getting them to pick up prescriptions, things like that. And that really started out of a necessity of him talking with an elderly neighbor that needed a hand, needed some help. And one day, Randy, uh, Randy Rosens, who was the founder that started that one, he was contacted by a friend that had a, a catering company. And there was, I think it was a, a wedding. And Lisa, you may remember a little bit better than I do, but I think it was a wedding that she'd been working and they had all of this leftover uh, food. And it was a lot of really great stuff like filet mignon and like just, you know, wedding style food and she calls randy and she's like hey we have all this food i know that you know you're working with these other people do you know anybody that might be able to take this mm -hmm. and that kind of kick-started him into saying hey this is a real thing and so he was like yeah i can for sure find somebody to take a bunch of steak and delicious food mm -hmm. so he went and picked it up dropped it off and that was the first official food run of keep austin fed um, so it was really just a grassroots thing started at the local level and really it's at the end of the day, I always like to say that it's the dumbest problem that we have, right? We have all of these mm. hungry people and we have all of this surplus food. I mean, the amount of food that is wasted in this country is absolutely insane. And so all that we are is we're just logistics. We're a way to connect A to B and bring this surplus food to people in need. And I mean, obviously, in this world, there is a big divide. There are a lot of people that are hurting, a lot of people in need. And that's something that has been here forever. Um, you know, so really at the end of the day, that's kind of where we started. Since then, we've come a long way. And, you know, we have a few hundred active volunteers. Mm -hmm. um, we work with multiple donors and recipients throughout the city. Uh, when, I, when I say donor and recipient, a donor, as you said, Darius, is a commercial kitchen. So that can be a restaurant, that can be a grocery store, that can be a caterer. We can't necessarily go pick up food, you know, from your Aunt Jean that wants to, you know, bake some cookies for us and bring those in. We can't do that. And we can't take leftover food that say was at a buffet and out to everybody. Everything that we mm. take has to follow uh, particular safety guidelines. So we're picking up food 
that is prepared in a safe manner. And then we're working with our volunteers that are all required to have a food handler's permit so that they understand, you know, safe food handling practices. Mm -hmm. And they're going to pick up that food and take that to our recipient organizations, which are other 501c3 nonprofits that are servicing, you know, varying levels of people. Sometimes it's homeless populations. Sometimes it's uh, people that are, you know, it's just a, a low income population. Sometimes it's people that are uh, new uh, immigrants to the United States and refugees. So, you know, any kind of number of people, but at the end of the day, our biggest things from the perspective of, of staying within our safe bounds that we have to be picking up food from people uh, that are preparing it in a commercial kitchen. And two, we have to deliver to other nonprofits. So we're not going and standing out, you know, under the Sixth Street Bridge and handing out food to people directly. And that's just our way of, safe, of, of safeguarding uh, the food and the people around us to make sure that there are these kind of checks and balances that that food is being safely and efficiently delivered. Mm -hmm. um, and honestly, I mean, these organizations that we work with all over the city, they're seeing, you know, they may be seeing hundreds of people and they have a designated spot. So logistically, it makes a lot more sense overall there. Yeah. Right. Um, and Lisa yeah. may have, have more information on, you know, uh, specific numbers and things like that, that that she can dive into. Well, Lisa, I think, um, you know, so Lisa, you're the executive director, Russell, you're on the board. Uh, just share a little bit how you two came to be even involved with this, you know, because you spoke of other gentlemen who are basically the genesis of this, but uh, Lisa, maybe kick us off and just, just share a little bit of how you came to be a part of this. Yeah, so in uh, 2015, actually, is when I first became a volunteer with Keep Austin Fed, and I had learned about Keep Austin Fed through an event um, that uh, my, my previous business was doing, which was a dodge or yeah, a dodgeball event, and we wanted to have a beneficiary of it. And we were partnering with an organization, a group called Hot Dang uh, Veggie Burgers, and they were familiar with Keep Austin Fed, and so they suggested them, and we made them the beneficiary of the, the event. And then in uh, 2015, I had uh, some extra time on my hands, and I thought, you know what, I should just volunteer with this organization. And uh, I was incredibly aware of the amount of food waste in this country. Um, I had just watched a, a movie called Just Eat It, which was actually based in Canada, but I knew that all over North America there was a huge amount of food waste. And so I wanted to get involved with from that perspective. And then as I started volunteering with them, I realized how much need there actually was in Austin, which I was not aware of. And, and all the great organizations that are doing so much to help people sort of out of, out of poverty or out of hunger and um, and I just was sort of dumbfounded by the amount uh, of need that there was. So, so that kind of struck with me and, and sort of around the same time, our then volunteer executive director uh, was um, stepping down from that position and uh, moving to North Texas. And so um, we, were in, we were looking for a new executive director. And at that point we were 100% volunteer and uh, I just kind of went to the board and said, I'd love to do it, but I can't do it as a volunteer. And so, <laughs> so we worked with them. Um, the board worked, worked to get some funding to start half, you know, start to hire me half time and eventually up to full time. And, 
And now I'm pleased to say we have actually two paid positions, All right. um, <laughs> but to keep the organization running. And um, so that was sort of my story of how I got involved and just kind of stuck with it. Um, and I believe that Russell got involved about the same time. He might've joined a, as a volunteer a couple months before I did. Uh, and mm. so I, I knew, I knew him when I came on board and I think through the same connection. That's awesome. I love, you know, it's funny. I, I feel like I hear stories all the time about volunteers turned into executive directors <laughs> all the time. It's well, amazing. <laughs> I mean, you know, people are in the nonprofit world to get rich. And so you have to have a yeah. passion for what you're doing. That's uh, the truth. And that's I think that's why so many times that's what ends up happening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about about food waste. Um, obviously, I think most people are aware that this is a massive issue in this country, in North America specifically, I agree. Um, and so I, you know, as, as an organization that is working to feed people and feed people safely, people in need safely, I think it's easy sometimes, I'm guilty of this, to look at all of the waste that's coming from, say, you know, Russell, you talked about this wedding, where there was so much leftover food, but of course, that's not a safe way to transport it. So a lot of times what happens at weddings, let's just use that as, as an example, the catering company has all of this leftover food, which is either then, um, which I actually think that this is not following the rules either, but either it's given to the family or it's tossed because it's been, it's been out and it's perfectly good food, honestly. So not to get political, but I'm curious, what are your thoughts on that? Because to me, and again, I'm an outsider, I'm not working for an organization that does this every single day and is safely keeping people in need fed, but what, if anything, can, can be done in this country to eliminate that type of waste? Because while I can understand why it's not sanitary, perhaps, to me, it just seems so shameful that all of that food is being thrown away when there are hungry people mm -hmm. all over this country. Yeah. Well, I, I think there are two things that contribute to it. And in the, in the case of something like a catered event, a wedding or even a work meeting or whatever, where you're having food catered in, nobody ever wants to run out of food, one of, first of all. And so they always prepare extra and the caterers work that into the you know, price per, per person. Um, and so that's one thing. And, and if the catering company or the bride and groom contact us ahead of time, we will work with the catering company to say, this is what we can accept. And so if you keep trays of food cold or hot, depending on how they're supposed to be kept and don't set them out until they're actually needed, then we can take any of those trays that haven't been set out yet. Okay. That's um, great. That's great. And so we, we work with them to either pick it up immediately <clears throat> after the event is over or the catering company will take it back to their kitchen and we'll pick it up from the kitchen the next morning, um, something like that. In, in the grocery world, you know, we are a country that loves to have options and selections. And, you know, we want to feel every avocado before we put it in our basket. <laughs> and so the grocery stores want to keep, you know, big shelves full of food. I mean, every produce has to be full so that you think that you're getting the best of the best of the lot. And, I think that's one thing that as a, as a country, we need to get past. And uh, I'll be really curious to see, you know, 
five or 10 years down the road, how all of the um, curb, curbside or grocery delivery or whatever affects this because you hear, you're hearing more about dark stores where we, the consumer, don't actually see the food until it gets into our, you know, gets to our front porch or whatever. It's just coming from a warehouse. Right. And I'd be really curious to see how that impacts um, the amount of food that's going to waste because they're not having to stock the shelves um, as much anymore. So that's a super interesting point. I hadn't even thought about that because you are right. All, COVID has obviously completely changed the way many people grocery shop. Um, and, and now this whole era of either going to the grocery store and having them bring it out to your car or just having it delivered to your house. You're absolutely right. We don't get, we don't feel, smell, touch our food anymore. Um, which to some people, I know that that's a, a real problem, especially produce lovers, because they, they want to know that they're getting the best, as you said. But that's a really interesting point. I, I, I think that maybe we will see some changes in, in the future based on COVID. Speaking of COVID... Oh, go ahead, Russell. You go ahead oh, and sorry. then we'll get so, into COVID. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no worries. So I was just going to say, so, um, you know, kind of shadowing what, what Lisa's saying, I think really at the end of the day, it's going to take a paradigm shift in the way that we view food and the way that we view this, this kind of uh, immediate instant gratification. Because mm. I was talking with a grocer that was opening up a new store in a new neighborhood that they didn't have a presence in before. And if you've ever noticed, like, it, you know, and I'm not sure what the grocery stores are. If it, is it King Supers that are run you guys? Yep. Good job. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. King Supers. Okay. Same company. So <laughs> if you've ever been in, in a, maybe a different neighborhood or a different area that maybe has, you know, a different population set of people, you'll find different items in those stores. And I was talking with this grocer and he was saying that when they open up a new store, they specifically overbuy on a lot of items by anywhere from 10 to 30%. And the reason is, is, you know, let's say, for example, uh, here in Austin, our big stores are HEB, Randall's, Whole Foods, and Central Market. So let's say that Randall's is opening up a new store in a neighborhood where the presence over there is only HEB. Well, if you're a shopper and you go into this Randall's for the first time and they're out of something that you typically get at HEB and it's that they carry it, but they're just out of it you may be like, all right, forget this. I'm just going to keep going to HEB because I can't get what I need from over there. Mm -hmm. And you may stop going there. So they specifically overbuy by, you know, like I said, like he told me 10 to 30% on certain items. Wow. That takes huge. them. It's massive. And it takes them, he said about a year to two years to figure out the buying patterns of that neighborhood and of that area before they can start scaling that back and getting those numbers a little bit more dialed in. And so, you know, it's just, there's a lot of waste just on that end, but it's our expectations that are driving that. So it's not necessarily that, you know, the store feels it, it's that they know that they might lose customers if that happens. So if we can get to a point that we go to a store and they're out of something and it doesn't ruin your day and you just say, okay, I'm going to pivot <laughs> and find another way to, to make this meal or another way to make this, this recipe, or it's okay, I'm just going to come back in a few days or next week and I'll see if they have it again, then that would be a big change. But unfortunately, that's a big change for a lot of people that may not happen. Uh, there was also a study done a while back that talked about a lone piece of fruit on a stand. So for some reason, and it's a psychological thing, if you go to a stand and there, and it's overflowing with bananas, right? Like every square inch of that is packed to bananas. 
you're going to go buy some bananas. If there's one banana left, chance or one bundle of bananas, bananas left, chances of you buying that is like next to nothing because everybody looks at it as, ooh, what's wrong with that one? It's the <laughs> reject a, fruit. It's, right. it's, it's the runt <laughs> of the fruit family, right? So you're like, there's something going on and I'm just not going to buy that. And that single set of bananas will sit there and end up getting thrown away. Whereas had it been surrounded by 10 others, it may have gotten picked up. So it's just, it's kind of interesting. Um, but again, I think it's just, you know, going to take a really big paradigm shift. And I think that what Lisa's talking about, you know, these options for shopping and the way that people are expanding their horizons there and kind of getting into this different world could actually help the efficiency level of that overall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I was just thinking to myself about pre-COVID how, for me, I love produce. I love fruits and veggies. I love fresh food. Um, and for me, I pre-COVID, when I didn't have to wear a mask in the store, I would smell fruit because that's how you know if it's going to be very flavorful and sweet. Um, <clears throat> and what's interesting is now that I, um, I, I obviously still grocery shop, but a lot of times I'll just do a pickup order um, and have them bring it out to my car, mostly because it's so convenient. Like, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> what a wonderful thing. It's just so convenient. But what I found is I'm actually not buying as much fruit because when I look at what I'm buying, I'm like, oh, I just don't know. Are they going to pick it right for me? And like, what a first world country thing mindset <laughs> to be in where I'm like, oh, I'm just not going to buy the fruit because I can't smell it first. Or I'm not going to take, like you said, this, this last <laughs> banana off of this shelf because it's obviously there's something wrong with it because it's the only banana left where there are millions of people who are wondering when their next meal is going to come. And that is, that is something. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> no, it's, it's true though. Oh, sorry, Darius, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say for the complete side note, I, I don't think I've ever smelled my fruit ever in my life. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's, then you don't know what you're missing because right. if you're going to the store and I'll you're choosing between, again, so. true, if you're going to the store and you're deciding and you want a cantaloupe, for instance. Yeah, that's the only one I smell. <laughs> and you're like, okay, well, which cantaloupe of this, you know, there's 30 in this bin and you just pick one, if you smell it first and it smells and it has a very distinct cantaloupe smell, you're getting a really sweet cantaloupe mm. versus one that doesn't smell, it's not going to taste like anything. So you're okay. missing out or you Everybody were missing a- out because who knows when we'll ever be able to smell fruit again. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you got to push on the little button on the cantaloupe and yes. then you smell it on the end. <laughs> that's, the only, that's the only fruit that I smell. <laughs> mm. okay. Oh, funny. I'm anyway. I'm going to try that today. I'm going to try that <laughs> gonna go buy a cantaloupe <laughs> yeah mask off and everything there you uh, go <laughs> um, uh, so in in the austin area i'm curious uh are you guys are you is keep austin fed the only organization that that's doing this stepping in this arena if not you know how do you how do you work together with other organizations to continue to address this issue in a more effective uh, manner um so there are a few organizations in austin that are doing very similar um things. Central Texas Food Bank is our Feeding America branch of the food bank. And um, a few years ago, the Feeding America food banks really started to branch out so that they also were doing offering fresh Mm -hmm. produce. Um, They used to be all sort of shelf stable stuff. And so they are, I I guess, the biggest organization in Austin that's doing anything like this. 
Um, and I think it used to be viewed as sort of a competitive thing between the two of us. And it really isn't. I mean, we really like learned over the last few years to really collaborate more and cooperate more. And it comes down to volume. Essentially they, you know, if, if it's something that they can take their big 18 wheeler truck out and pick it all up, pallets and pallets of food, then that's something for Central Texas Food Bank. It's not something for Keep Austin Fed. We mm -hmm. have our volunteers are using their own cars. <clears throat> and so those cars might be anything from a Honda Fit to a pickup truck to, you know, whatever. So we can only fit what we can fit in our cars. And mm -hmm. if we know in advance that it's going to be a couple cars worth or three or four cars worth, then we'll get three or four volunteers out there with their cars to pick it up. But by no means can we handle pallets and pallets of, of food coming our way. Mm -hmm. And we also don't have any storage facilities. So okay. our food, our volunteers pick up the food from point A, which is our food contributor and drop it off at point B, which is our uh, partner recipient organization. So we don't store anything in the meantime. Um, between... Could you have the option to, if you had the facilities? Uh, we could, and we are actually looking into that right now to try and find some cold storage um, capacity. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the food, like like we've said, it's um, we focus on perishable food items, mm -hmm. and a lot of the food doesn't have a, a long shelf life by the time we get it. Um, and so we don't want to get in the habit of storing food for a long period of time, but the cold storage would certainly help us be able to collect food at night when organizations maybe aren't open and put it in the cold storage and then deliver it the next day. Um, so we still want to keep that time period very short, but uh, it, it's, it's still going to be, you know, we're still not going to have humongous warehouses full of cold storage. It's going to be, you know, a six by six walking cooler or something like that, that we can, mm -hmm. that we can use and store food in. So there's, um, so there are, there are the biggest organization. Um, there are a few others in Austin that are doing small scale food rescue and, you know, it's, there's room for everybody. There's a lot of people in need and they, you know, we try and uh, keep communications open to make sure that we're not sort of donation dumping as it, as it, you know, has been known so that we're not giving organizations more food than they can possibly distribute to their clients. We're hitting other organizations in other parts of town. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And One thing uh, to note. Oh. yeah, I was going to say oh, just sorry. during COVID, a lot of initiatives have started up. And so we actually have a weekly phone call every Friday morning with a lot of, with all these organizations that are providing um, food access just to try and coordinate, coordinate efforts. And I was just going to jump in real quick. One thing to note also that's a little bit different between us and say the food bank is like Lisa said, there, there's really space for all of us mm -hmm. in this, within this problem because we fill a niche that they can't necessarily fill all the time. And, you know, like she said, they are, they can pick up, you know, pallets and pallets from Walmart or Costco or places like that. Uh, and they, they do pick up from other places as well. But one thing that we really kind of fill this little gap of is we have what's called our SWAT team, which is our on-demand uh, food service, you know, food pickup essentially. So any of our volunteers that are interested in joining the SWAT team means that there, it's not a scheduled food run. So we may get a call from a place uh, like a little taco place in town called Taco Deli, for example. And they say, hey, we uh, just had a big event that got rained out. We have 300 tacos or, you know, sometimes it's 50 tacos, whatever it may be, that are ready to go. Can somebody come pick these up? We send that out to our SWAT team. That is a text message that gets sent out to everybody that wants to be on that, on that uh, side of the thing. And 
it basically says, is anybody near Taco Deli off Spyglass? They've got 300 tacos that need to be picked up by 3 p.m. Mm-hmm. I can respond back if I'm in the area and say, hey, yep, I can be there in 10 minutes. Can you find a recipient for me? Our logistics person will then find a recipient that is able to take in that type of food, has the ability to take in that amount of food, whatever it is, call them and say, hey, uh, we've got a random you know, 300 tacos that are ready to be picked up that can be to you in 20 minutes. Are you guys able to take those in? And they say yes. Then that person messages me and says, okay, here's where you're delivering to. I drive over, pick it up, drop it off. Within 20, 30 minutes, I'm done with the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's really kind of a niche that doesn't fit into someone like the food banks, uh, kind of you know, their workflow and, and just kind of the way that their business model set up overall. So again, there's just, there's kind of space uh, for everybody. And, you know, it's, it's interesting you bring that up. So the way that I actually got involved with Keep Austin Fed is I was starting my own nonprofit called the Nourishment Project, which is basically going to do the same exact thing because I couldn't find anybody that was doing this in Austin at the time, and, you know, this is, this is years ago now, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, for me, one, one important thing was I wanted to be a part of something that wasn't necessarily faith-based, um, which, you know, nothing against that. Those organizations are great. They do a lot of good work and a lot of good things. It just wasn't the right fit for me personally. Mm-hmm. So we were in the process of starting our own nonprofit, but we were going this like complete opposite route. Where we were like, okay, we got to get our 501c3 status. We got to get, you know, XYZ set up. Whereas, what Keep Austin Fed did was, oh, there's a problem. Well, let's go fix it really quick. And then we'll figure out all the other stuff later. Mm. And, you know, I ended up coming across Keep Austin Fed and finding them as this food rescue organization. And for me personally, when I was looking at starting that, that nonprofit, I was like, well, wait, you guys are already doing this. And it's exactly the vision that I had and exactly what I want to see happen. So I'm just going to join you guys. I'm not going to go start my own thing and cannibalize. It doesn't make any sense. And, you know, for me and, and, the guys that were involved with me in that uh, initial project, it's not about, you know, like Lisa said earlier, nobody gets into the nonprofit world to get rich. Like it's not about (laughs) notoriety or being famous or getting rich or being the only organization for us. It's truly that, Hey, there's a big problem here and it's impacting hungry people. It's impacting the environment. And it's just a wasteful thing overall that has a really easy solution. So why don't we come in and just make it work? Um, So I think that that's really kind of a cool thing is that, you know, again, like we play well in the sandbox with everybody, depending on what it is. And we have a niche that we fit very well. And that works for a lot of people, but we can't, we understand that we can't do certain things, you know, that the food bank does. So it's really just kind of a synergy of all of us working together to help solve this problem. That's awesome. I, you mentioned, I, I want to go, I want to talk about COVID, but then I also want to make sure we come back to the environmental impact of, of, food because you just mentioned it and I think it's super important. But first and foremost, let's talk about the people you serve. I know that in Larimer, or actually we'll just say Northern Colorado, and I know I know that this went on in many parts of this country, but when COVID happened and millions of people were losing their jobs and did not know when they were going to see their next paycheck, our food bank here, um, which is part of Feed America, was begging for food, begging people. Everywhere you looked, they were posting everywhere about, we need food, we need food, we need food. We could not keep up with the demand of people coming in. I saw pictures of the line of cars wrapped around for miles of people waiting to get food. So how has COVID 
impacted your organization, what you guys do? Did you have any shortage um, at any point in time of food coming in? Did you see an increase in, in the people? And I know that you're working with organizations <clears throat> who serve the people, but did those organizations see a big spike in people that they were serving? Yeah, the, so I'll address both questions. The first was, is the um, supply of food and what the change, what the effect of COVID was on that. And yes, at the very beginning of COVID, when everybody was going to the grocery store and stocking their pantries and fridges and second fridges and everything else with the food that they could, they could gather, um, we did see a drop in volume of surplus food. Um, also because suppliers, distributors weren't able to get the food to the stores. And then when restaurants started shutting down, obviously we weren't getting food from them. Um, in Austin, there's a big tech presence and all of those businesses cater meals for their employees to keep them, you know, sort of on campus all day long. And so we stopped getting all of that food, all the prepared uh, food from those uh, events. And so there definitely was a big drop right at the beginning. And then the grocery stores rebounded pretty quickly. Um, and, and then we saw sort of a rash of restaurants who finally kind of threw up their hands and said, we have to shutter our doors. All this food in this walk-in refrigerator, this walk-in freezer we need to get rid of. Can you come pick it up? And so we would send out teams of volunteers to go pick that food up and take it somewhere. Um, so we saw that kind of rush come through. And then it's finally kind of started to balance out. Some restaurants are starting to reopen. Um, we still don't see too much in the catering world uh, coming back online. Um, like I said, the grocery stores have balanced out. So supply has kind of started to come back almost to normal, almost to pre-COVID days. It's still a little bit lower. And, um, and it's changed the type of food. I mean, the grocery stores, we're not getting nearly as much just sort of bulk produce anymore from them. We're getting more uh, packaged foods because they're selling more, more of that, either prepared foods or packaged lettuces or whatever. It's not just the bulk foods that we're getting anymore. Um, and then as far as demand goes, uh, yes, it's definitely increased amongst almost all of our partners and uh, I think the the stat I heard most recently was that there was about a 220% increase of people uh, seeking food assistance from our food, our local food bank. Um, so that's pretty, pretty amazing and terrible at the same time. Um, we've had some of our partners I talked to had uh, have a food distribution once a week and they said, that they used to be serving about 150 um, people a day, and now they're serving about 450 people wow. each week. Um, so, and then other organizations have had to, I mean, all of our partner organizations have had to change their models of food distribution. So that's, that's been a challenge as well. It's really been sort of every week there's something new that comes up that we have to adjust to. Um, and it's really just kind of, an issue of figuring out how are we going to adjust? What can we do differently? What can we make it easier for them to distribute? Um, and you know, what kind of what kind of partners do we need to seek out as far as food contributors to get that food that'll meet with these or match with these organizations? Um, yeah, so it's really just been a big uh, puzzle that's constantly changing. Like right. 
So interesting I, thing during COVID. Oh, sorry, sorry. No, go, go ahead. Go ahead, um, go ahead. So I was just gonna say one interesting thing that I, that I think we also noticed during COVID, particularly during shelter in place, was we had an influx of people wanting to volunteer with us, and it was kind of a little bit disheartening because, due to the shelter in place, and you know at the at that time especially, just really not knowing what to do and what was going on, we had stopped all of our. Uh, all of our uh, orientation sessions. So we couldn't really take on new volunteers, but we had all these people that now are showing interest. And I think part of it is just like being a stir crazy and wanting to get out of the house. Um, but that was kind of interesting to me as well. Cause it's like, yeah, there's a lot of people hurting, but it just showed that there are a lot of people that want to get involved. And one thing to anybody listening to this that I want, you know, to really make clear that's, that's honestly one of my favorite things about keep Austin fed is that it doesn't take a big time commitment. You know, it's not like a, uh, you know, a Habitat for Humanity where it's like, okay, I'm going to have to go spend all Saturday out there and I'm going to spend eight hours or nine hours out there doing something. It's literally like you sign up, you become a volunteer and you can do a food run in 30 minutes. You can mm -hmm. sign up for ones if you want, if you want to do a scheduled run that may take at most an hour. Um, and then you can also just sign up for our SWAT team. And it's like, hey, if you're available, come do it. So, you know, for anybody that, that is listening, that showed interest kind of during that time, you know, I'd encourage anybody to come and, and check us out and just become a volunteer with us because it's not something that is this huge time commitment. Um, and that's honestly, I think one of the, one of the greatest things about it. Mm -hmm. Well, I, you know, some of the information you guys were just sharing makes me, I, I have like a bunch of different ideas and questions. And, uh, but one of the things we talked earlier about a paradigm shift and when I hear that, you know, demand can essentially go from, you know, 130 people to 400 some odd people. And in a short time frame, I tend to think of, well, that's not just people who, you know, maybe are out on the street or, you know, have a sort of uh, more transient lifestyle. These are individuals who maybe have lost jobs, uh -huh. um, you know. And so I, I, I tend to start thinking that that might be where the seeds of that paradigm shift might be lying and realizing that uh, I don't know exactly how it equates to the surplus, but I think it's realizing like that it's a privilege to have what we have in terms of food, uh, you know, and so, and I don't even know if this is a question as much as I'm having a moment and listening to you guys and thinking about <laughs> it uh, because I'm like, well, you know, what would be sweet is that if, okay, well, maybe instead of everyone running to the food bank and the food bank being stretched and, and Keep Austin being stretched, you know, how do we create a network where within our homes and communities, we are becoming more aware of the surplus we have and the needs within our own neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, so that instead of just running out to the food bank and driving and getting in line, you just knock on the door next door. You know, taking the sort of shame and the, the, the pride out of that, um, so I don't know. That was just a side tangent. You guys got my wheels turning a little bit, but I did have an actual question because I know, because <laughs> I know I used to work in food service and, and I, I've managed some restaurants and things like that. And I remember having conversations a couple of times where I'm like, man, we got this waste. Let's do something with this. And I remember some of my colleagues being like, we can't. And um, so I'm curious, you know, just from your perspective, you guys have experience in this area. And if, and if you can't answer, that's okay. But thinking about someone who maybe feels that burden and wants to help be another person putting their foot in and addressing this issue, uh, 
maybe, or can you speak to maybe some of the misconceptions about maybe regulations, mm -hmm. infrastructure that you need, you know, because when I heard about you working through like people picking up and dropping off, I'm like, oh, that could be pretty intricate. Hopefully it's not. And so uh, maybe talk, talk about some of the misconceptions about just actually doing the legwork for someone who out there maybe feels that burden, but it's like, I don't know what to do, you know. Right. The number one misconception uh, is the one that you mentioned where your restaurant was saying, no, we can't donate this food. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of people will ask restaurants, hey, what do you do with your surplus food at the end of the day? And they'll be like, we just toss it or compost it or whatever. And then they mention, have you considered donating it to keep Austin fed? And they'll say, no, because um, we've been sued. You know, we got sued three years ago for it. And the truth is that there has not been a lawsuit in over 20 years uh, for donated food. So uh. there are um, federal liability protections for donated food, specifically for donated food. And um, as long as it's done in good faith and, you know, there's no willful wrongdoing in the donation of the food, as long as everybody believes it's still safe and edible, then there are federal liability protections. So that is the number one misconception in the food permitted business world is that they can't donate the food for fear of being um, sued. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that in, in the state of Texas, at least that's from organization to organization. So you restaurants could be liable if they just, you know, fed somebody out their back door that was hanging out in the alley or whatever, waiting for food. Technically in the state of Texas, you could be liable. I think in California, they've broadened those liability protections to, allow even for feeding individuals directly. Um, so that's the number one misconception. The other is uh, from, the, from a volunteer perspective, um, there's a fear. Uh, there's a fear when dealing with um, populations experiencing homelessness or low income populations or you know, the parts of town that they have to go to to deliver mm -hmm. the food. Um, and really I've never been, met with anything other than gratitude when bringing food to people. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, we encourage volunteers to, if they're not comfortable making a food rescue for the first time to go out with, well, in the COVID times, it's a little bit different, but <laughs> pre-COVID we, we were like, we can set you up with a more experienced volunteer to go out and do this food run so you can see what it's all about. Now we encourage people to take a family member with them or, you know, to on the food run to say, hey, it's, you know, there's safety in numbers and it's more fun doing it with somebody else and, uh, and sometimes quicker depending on what the food run entails. Um, and so we try and get uh, people over that hurdles. I might have conversations with our volunteers to explain to them exactly the process that they're going to go through. And we try and put it in writing as clearly as possible. Like when you get to the, uh, restaurant, you know, walk in, let them know you're with Keep Austin Fed. They'll take you into the kitchen. They'll show you where to pick up the food. Call this number on the recipient side to let them know you're on their way. They'll have somebody waiting for you to unload your car. So we try and be real clear with our instructions. Um, but then also just, you know, we're available via phone if, if volunteers have additional questions. Um, those, those, I guess, are the two big things. And um, like Russell said, we do ask all of our volunteers to get food handler certification so that they know at least the basics to food safety guidelines um, and so that they're more comfortable with what they what they see. And there is one thing that I've, I've actually seen, and you may be able to speak to this just having been in the restaurant world. Uh, 
there's a lot of pride with chefs in particular. And there's a lot of pride in the fact that like I've, t I've spoken to people that run restaurants and I'm like, Hey, do you guys ever have surplus or like leftover food? Like, oh, absolutely not. Mm. Never. You know, they're like, no, I, I run a, I run a tight <laughs> ship. It's a clean kitchen. You know, everything that goes in goes out, it's used perfectly. And then I'll talk to, you know, like maybe a busboy or a server there and they're like, they're like secretive about it. And they're like, no, no, that's not true. Like there is a lot of waste, but it's, but I think yeah. it's kind of a pride thing. And it, that's always just been an interesting fact to me. And I, I have a friend that uh, his family owns a chain of grocery stores and uh, it, they kind of serve more Hispanic population. And they truly are one of the few places that I've seen uh, as far as like a, a grocer goes that when they, so they have food service within their grocery store. And then they also have like kind of prepared foods that they'll make. So when he starts getting tomatoes and they start, you know, they have a, a pile of tomatoes and some of the tomatoes start to get kind of towards the end of their life, they just shift those over to the restaurant. And it's like, okay, you know, make pico de gallo with these, you know, mm -hmm. cut these up, do something, make salsa with this, do something else with these tomatoes. And so that's really the only place that I've seen like that full utilization. And even he's told me, he's like, yeah, we for sure still have waste. He's like, you cannot avoid it. There's no getting around it um, for all the reasons that we've talked about. But I think that that's part of that misconception also is that there is a little bit of pride in that, you know, some chefs and not all chefs, obviously, but some, some chefs may not want to admit that, you know, they do have this surplus and there is this, this waste. Um, and again, it's something that I, I've never really understood, but I have, found that within the, the food service world. Yeah, yeah. Well, so much amazing information. I feel like I have a million more questions and <laughs> we didn't get a chance to talk about my environment questions. So we're gonna have you guys back on and the entire episode is going to be about the implications on our environment with food waste. But um, to, to wrap things up, tell us where people can learn more, how to connect with you, how to follow you. Then you can learn more from going to our website. It's just keepaustinfed.org. And uh, all of our handles, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, they're all Keep Austin Fed. Um, so we'd like to keep it simple. Uh, follow <laughs> us on all of those things. Um, and uh, I guess that's, we're not, we're not on Snapchat or uh, <laughs> any, any of the things that the younger folks use these TikTok. days. TikTok. Right. We're about yeah, to get Lisa yeah. making some TikToks. No, uh, well, uh, so yeah, the, uh, those are the three main ones. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you guys, Lisa, Russell, thank yeah. you so much for joining us today. Such amazing things that you guys are doing for the Austin community. Thank you for your service and thank you for being here with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having us. We really appreciate it.